This morning, we have the unbelievable privilege to welcome our speaker, Lisa Sharon Harper. As what she does, what she does, Lisa's answer is clear. She says, so that the church might be worthy of the moniker, Bride of Christ. Through preaching, writing, training, network development, and public witness, Lisa engages the church in the work of justice and peacemaking. For example... Lisa helped build the Evangelical Immigration Table from 2011 to 2013. She fasted for 21 days as a core faster with the 2013 Immigration Reform Fast for Families. She trained and catalyzed evangelicals in St. Louis to engage the 2014 push for justice in Ferguson and did the same in Baltimore in 2015. Lisa Sharon Harper was recognized in 2015 as one of 50 powerful women religious leaders to celebrate on International Women's Day by Huffington Post. She earned her master's in human rights from Columbia University in New York City. And I actually didn't know until recently that she is currently in the process of ordination in our denomination, the Evangelical Covenant Church. So we want to give her a warm new community welcome as I invite her to come. All right. Thank you. Thank you so much. Woohoo! <laughs> I am so excited to be here with you. This is a, a huge privilege for me. And also a real, um, it's, it's a special day, actually. There are several very good gospel events happening around the day, and y'all are kicking it off. So I want to say thank you to all those who came out. Um, who just came to check out uh, the sermon, but also the church. This is a really special congregation. Do you get a sense of that? Yeah, come on now, seriously. And, and honestly, thank you for the worship. Yes. I felt like I was in the throne room this morning. Who here felt like that? I'm serious. I was brought to the throne this morning. So thank you for that. So the, what I want to share with us today is actually the product of 13 years of searching. It started about 13 years ago uh, on a bus uh, pilgrimage. Actually, the ECC does this thing called the Sankofa journey. You guys are familiar with it? Yeah, Sankofa, right? So I didn't do that. Hello. (laughs) But I did something very similar to it. Um, Sankofa began, I believe, in 1999, 2000. Is that right? Um, And about three years later, InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, where I was on staff, um, started doing this thing called the Pilgrimage for Reconciliation, where Sankofa is one week long. The pilgrimage was a four-week journey, and it began with an orientation on the biblical concept of shalom. And then you go through this four-week journey, and it only, they only did it twice, actually, because it was really, really expensive. But anyway, um, but it was also worth it. That was an investment that they made in their staff and also their students the second year. But this journey messed me up. Can somebody say messed up? <laughs> it messed me up. It messed up my understanding of the gospel. And so, therefore, I was for two, for, well, for one year— depressed. I came out of this journey and came back and did not know how to process it. So that is what led me to 13 years of investment. Now let me just, there's a little bit of knocking. I'm wondering if it's my, yeah, probably is my earring. So y'all, I'm going to be really kind of unconventional and I'm going to take out my earring here. And I think that might, 
No, it's not helping. Tell me. Is that it? Oh, is that the helpful? Can I put my earring back in? <laughs> I don't really like to walk around with one earring. You know, you know what? There you go. We'll keep it out. So, so there we go. If you get pictures, just take it from that side. There you go. <laughs> so, <laughs> I'm just kidding. So, so this journey changed my life. Now, let me, I want to share with you this journey. And then we're going to get into the text, go deep into the text that this journey drove me to. Um, and then we're going to ask some implications for our world today. So you ready to go with me on a journey? All right, let's do it. So I want to share with you two snapshots from the journey. Remember, this is four weeks. The first two weeks, we retraced the Cherokee Trail of Tears. Um, and, and, this is, and it was all very significant for me because my family, according to oral tradition, we walked the Trail of Tears, actually, and we escaped in Kentucky and then hid out under assumed identities for the rest of ever. So we really can't trace our family lineage to Oklahoma because we don't have the family names pre-Trail of Tears. But, and that's, that's part of, of the, the consequence of escape is that literal break from the community, from the Cherokee Nation. But what also we experienced and that this journey retraced was the African experience in America from slavery through civil rights. And my family slaved in, in multiple states, actually. But one of those states was South Carolina. Another one was Kentucky. Another one was Virginia. And so we retraced the, chair, the, the African experience in the deep south. So it was basically, we did, a, we did a big circle around the south. North south, deep south. And the first stop was this place called Dahlonega, Georgia. Are you guys familiar with Dahlonega, Georgia? Anybody heard of it before? Ah, oh, like two people. Okay, maybe three, right? So... I mean, it's actually one of those places you don't hear a lot about. But would you believe me if I told you that Dahlonega, Georgia, was the site of the very first gold rush in America? I'm telling you something that's true. It's not an alt fact. This is for real, right? (laughs) Dahlonega, Georgia, was the site of the first gold rush in America. Now, according to who you talk to, They'll tell you kind of how it sprung up. Some people point to a little Cherokee boy who found gold in the woods in Dahlonega, Georgia. And within like a year, you had miners down there trying to mine gold. Other people will say a little African-American enslaved boy found gold in the woods. But it was all in Dahlonega, Georgia. So depending on who you're talking to, you get that story. But what... Whoever tells you, if they know the story, what they will tell you. First of all, we, we went to the Dahlonega, Georgia, Georgia Museum. And they showed us a huge film. Like, we went into a big movie theater. And it was like this really, like, celebrated documentary about the ingenuity of the miners. Because you see, what happened was when, right around 19, I'm sorry, 1828, there was a recession happening um, in the north. And so they thought, well... This is one way for us to cure the recession, is to get more money into Americans' hands. And how better to do that than to get gold into their hands? So let's send people down to to Dahlonega, Georgia, to get the gold. But what they didn't tell them, or maybe they did and it didn't really matter, is that Cherokees were already living on that land. And so in this film, we're watching, all 25 of us, including children, right? 
Children, whole families are on this trip all together. And we're watching this film where they're, 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 they're celebrating the ingenuity of the miners that blasted the hills with water cannons and got the gold out of the hills. And a little boy who was Randy Woodley, I don't know if you know Randy Woodley, but Randy Woodley was our, our guide on this journey for the Cherokee Trail of Tears part of it. His son, Redbird, turned to his mother, Edith, and said, Mommy, they didn't mention the Cherokees. They didn't. But when you walked outside of the movie theater, you could see on the wall there was a map that, had, that actually showed all of the lands that were parceled out for all of the miners that came out. They all got land from the president. But that land was directly on top of Cherokee homes and villages without permission. Snapshot number two. Snapshot number two, this is the end of our journey. We've literally done the whole circle. We've come back to Georgia, and now we're in Atlanta. We Actually, the very place where we started, we started in Atlanta. And the last stop was the King Center. Who here has ever been to the King Center? Okay, cool. Okay, more of you. So let me just tell you, y'all got to go to Georgia and you got to go to Atlanta, Dahlonega, and you got to go to the King Center, whoever hasn't been there. It really is a must-see. I have to say, though, I had already been there just recently, so I wasn't really all that excited about going into the King Center. I was more just going in to support, you know, to support my buddies who were seeing it for the first time. And, but as soon as I came in the door, I noticed that there were paintings on the wall that were, they weren't there the last time that I was there. So I said, okay, let me go see this. This is a new exhibit. Let's go take a look, right? So go around to the walls and there's this painting that I come across, and it's, it's, it's really, they're, they're all huge paintings, and they look like they're all by the same person, right? And so I go up to the painting, and it's really big, and, and I, I look, and I'm going, what is this? There's a, there's a young black boy who is holding a huge bale of cotton, and it's overflowing, and he is smiling, and he's fully clothed and, like, really like clean, well put together clothes, might have even had it ironed that morning. And he had shoes on. And I said, whoa, there's something wrong with this picture. Because enslaved people did not have shoes. In fact, that's why, you know, we get the black spiritual, the old slave um, hymn, that said, all God's children's got shoes. Because there was a, a proclamation from the soul of those enslaved on those plantations that declared in the face of indignity, there was a place where we had full dignity. Right? So I said, something's wrong here. So then I looked at the next picture right over here, and there's this rolling bucolic scene, you know? And in this scene, there's also a family that is together, you know, mom, dad, two children, picking cotton with smiles on their faces. I was like, what is this? What? what is this? You know? So I went and I was like, what? You know, trying to find some way to get something out of this exhibit. So I went up and I found in the corner a plaque that told me how to get something out of this exhibit. And the, the plaque said, examine the painting on the wall and then see if you can find the picture in the painting on the dollar bill that's next to the painting. Now, I hadn't even seen any dollar bills. I, I just kind of blanked over that. But I went back to that picture of the young boy with the bale of cotton, and I, I looked at it, and then I 
oh my God, there's a dollar bill next to it. So I looked at the bale of cotton and there, I'm sorry, the dollar bill, and there was the young boy on the dollar bill. I said, what is this, like Monopoly money? What is this? So then I looked at the bucolic rolling hill, and sure enough, that picture was in the dollar bill that was next to it. I went, there were hundreds of these dollar bills, hundreds of them that lined this wall, and paintings that blew up the pictures on these dollar bills. And I said, what is this exhibit? And so I finally found the title of the exhibit. Do you know what it was called? The Color of Money, Confederate Currency. You see, the Confederacy actually knew what they were doing. They were sending alt-facts around the world. It was propaganda, you see, because they knew that their money did not just stay in the South. It didn't stay. It actually went between them and New York through the stock exchange. It went all over the world. People were buying cotton in Germany, in England, in South Africa, from everywhere. So they were sending a false narrative of what was actually happening in order to justify what they were doing. And isn't it interesting that slavery was on the money? So I got to the end of this summer, and I was haunted by one question. The question is, what does my understanding of the gospel have to say to this? What does my understanding of the good news of Jesus Christ have to say? to this. And I had to admit that my understanding came up mute in the face of some of the deepest injustice that ever hit our land and that my own family endured. I imagined myself, you see, back in college, when I was an undergrad, I was, I was a member of Campus Crusade, right? Like, and back when it was Crusade, now it's Crew. Hello, somebody. Anybody here um, went to Crew? All right, awesome, great, thank you. So, I mean, I was a student leader all four years at Rutgers University, and so I, and I don't know if you guys still did this or if when you were in Crew, they still did this, but we knew the four spiritual laws like the back of our hand so well that I used to write parodies about it, like little songs, you know, little jingles about it. Right? So I knew it so well. You know, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And, but you are sinful and therefore separated from God. But Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty for your sin. And therefore, if you just pray this little prayer at the back of the gold booklet, then you get to go to heaven, right? Okay, folks from Crew, am I right? This is right. This is our, this is, and this is not just Crew. This literally has become the narrative of the gospel that we have received since the beginning of the 20th century. I'll tell you, it's not what the narrative was in the 19th century. It isn't. But it's what we have taken into our marrow. But I came up short, you see, because I imagine myself sharing that understanding of the good news to Henry Lawrence, who walked the Trail of Tears and escaped and had to hide out under a false identity. I 
after maybe his mother probably died on the trail. And then coming up to him and saying, Henry, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. But you are sinful and therefore separated from God. But Jesus died for the penalty of your sin, and so therefore all you need to do is pray this prayer at the back of the gold book, and you get to go to heaven. And I imagine myself talking to Leah Ballard, who was the last adult slave in our family, who was mulatto because her mother was raped, and that's how she came to be, and who was a breeder. She had 17 children, not because she wanted to have 17 children, but because she was a breeder. Her master made her breed more money for him. And I imagined one time after some man came and raped her in order to give more money to her master and going up to my great-great-grandmother and saying to Leah Ballard, Leah, don't worry. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. But you are sinful and therefore separated from God. But Jesus, Jesus died to pay the penalty for your sin. So all you need to do is pray the prayer at the back of the school booklet and you get to go to heaven. Leah, isn't that good news? You see, this is the truth that sent me into depression for a year. That if my understanding of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ is not good in good news to my own ancestors to those who need good news the most then maybe it's not good enough and that's what sent me into genesis and so when i when i started the research in genesis i have to say it literally took like a decade um, to to mine all of this but This piece that I'm going to share with you right now literally brought me to tears, to tears and worship. I started worshiping in my writing chair when I saw this. You see, the context of of Genesis 1 is important to understand. Um, uh, You know, scholars, there's debate about who wrote Genesis, right? Whether it was multiple scholars or, or, sorry, writers or one, whether it was Moses I have come to believe, as a result of the research that I did, that it was multiple writers. I think it's just really hard to land that there was only one writer. Uh, When you study the syntax and how stuff was put together and the use of language and names and all of that, um, and also the concern of different pieces, and also the reality that Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 are two separate creation stories. They literally have different orders of creation, right? So I came to believe that Genesis 1 was, in fact, written by a company of priests. And those priests, the scholars say, um, were exiting Babylon. They were actually at the end, the tail end of their of their exilic period, the time where they were taken out of Jerusalem, sent to Babylon, and now they were actually preparing to enter the new temple. They were going to have a new era of their own rule. And here's the deal. 
They experienced 70 years of oppression. That's about five generations when you consider how, like, they were, you know, the ages with which they were having children, right? Five generations of people having been told by their captors, their oppressors, you were created to be a slave. Because that's what, that's the worldview of the Babylonians. They believed that all humanity, actually, was created to be the slaves of the gods, And they believed that especially the booty of war, which they were, were going to be their slaves, right? So they were told, you are slaves. They were told, you are nobody. I'm sitting there going, whoa, this sounds a little familiar, right? And so it is in that context that these priests who have been oppressed for 70 years sit down and write their creation story after having having it been handed down for generations Hundreds, maybe thousands of years before that. But they said, no, we're going to write it down now. And when you study the text in Genesis 1, you see incredible parallels with the Babylonians' creation story. So as I'm reading it, I'm realizing, oh my goodness, could it be that these priests were not only just simply writing down their creation story? But that as they were exiting five generations of oppression, they were commenting on the worldview of their oppressors. Let me share with you why I I came to that. So Enuma Elish, you see, is this, the creation story of the Babylonians. In that creation story, the river is full of conniving gods who war against each other for supremacy. Marduk rises up to challenge Tiamat for supremacy, and who he, she, she has created 11 monsters to help her to win the battle. But Marduk strikes a bargain with the other gods. If he prevails, then he gets to reign supreme, and he does win. And much like the river in Enuma Elish, the deep... In Genesis, it's full of agony. But in this story, there are no smaller gods. There is only one God. And guess what that God's name is? Supreme God. Elohim. Is it possible to see the deep serving as a kind of double entendre? One phrase with two meanings. Both a place of agony and a symbol of Babylonian oppression. The earth is a vacuous desolation. It is a surging mass of water surrounded on all sides by misery, destruction, death, sorrow. All translations for that word darkness. Ways you can translate that word darkness. And then action. The wind, the breath, the violent exhalation of God moves over the surging mass of misery. And the word for move there, rakaf, literally means to brood as a hen broods over her eggs. It is as if God's spirit, ruach, a feminine noun somebody, hello somebody, positions herself to confront the misery and destruction, to confront the sorrow and wickedness. She broods over it as if she is about to do battle with the darkness, and her strategy for engagement is birth. New life. You see, then Elohim, the supreme God, speaks, Let there be light! 
Genesis 1-3. And light is born. Born into the world. And Elohim saw that the light was good. And the voice and command of God births light. And there is clarity. And there is happiness. And there is goodness that is birthed into the world for the very first time from a cesspool of despair. And this, this was the context of those priests exiting Babylon. You see, they had experienced that cesspool of despair for 70 years. And yet now they were free. God put a limitation. God put a boundary on the darkness. It's called light. God put a boundary on their oppression. It was called exodus. And this is our human context. We are surrounded by the stuff of darkness. It weaves destruction into our lives and into our world, and it is painful. But, God. There are three words. One is actually a phrase that I want to really kind of share with you, because these three words unlocked this text for me. The first is actually the phrase. It's tov me'od. Tav me'od. Tav means good and me'od means very. And it's what we find at the end of Genesis 1, this, this epic, you know, Hebraic poem. And the reason why we know it's an, it's an epic Hebraic poem is that the word tav is used usually in that context, in the context of epic Hebraic poem, poetry. That's where you find the word tav used in Hebrew. And it's used seven times here. And this is the seventh time. And the seventh time, it's actually paired with the word me'od, which means very. But it's not just very. It actually, it can be translated forceful. It can be translated extreme. It can be translated abundant, crazy, crazy, crazy good. Right? In fact, you could even make a case for violently good. Whoa. So when God looked around at creation and said, this is very good. This is tov me'od. The original readers, hearers, would not have thought that God was saying, ooh, that's a good walrus over there. Or that's a very good cloud I just made. Or, or that's a really good human being. No. What God was saying and how they would have understood it is that the relationship between things is very good because tov exists between things in the Hebraic mind. Goodness is not located in the thing. It exists between things. So God was talking about the radical goodness of all of the of creation, of the relatedness between all of the created order, all of the created world. The relationship between humanity and God was forcefully good. The relationship between men and women was forcefully good. The relationship between all humanity and the rest of creation was forcefully good. The relationship between all creation and the way things worked, the systems that governed us, was forcefully good. There was no cursing in Genesis 1, only blessing. You see? That's what very goodness looks like. Now, I want just to go a little bit further back in that same day, at the top of the day, when God creates humanity 
God says in Genesis 1:26, then God said, let us make humankind in our image according to our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the bird of the air and over the cattle and over all the wild animals of the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So in this text, we see two words that jump out. The first one I want to bring out is salem. It's actually the word image. So that word image is the word salem. And, and the The thing that's so radical, there's several things that are radical about this, but the thing here is that they are talking in the context of the Babylonian Empire. After having been oppressed for 70 years by people who, in their worldview, the only ones who possessed the image of God were the royalty, the kings, the queens. Those were the only ones who possessed the image of God. So, and actually... Up to that time, every empire before them had also held that belief that the image of God is only born in the king and the queen. So it is radical departure from worldview that is held by empires all around that every single human being is made in the image of God. My Lyft driver was made in the image of God. The homeless woman who sits outside, right across the street at the bus stop from where I always go get lunch when I'm back in D.C., she is made in the image of God. The woman on food stamps who needs that extra supplemental income in order to be able to feed her children, she is made in the image of God. Donald Trump is made in the image of God. Hillary Clinton is made in the image of God. Everyone. All humanity is made in the image of God. But then these writers do something even more revolutionary. They say, and let them have dominion. Now remember, these are priests in a place that does not have separation of church and state. These are priests who are about to rule, themselves about to rule to enter into the temple and rule. And as they write down their creation story, they declare that all humanity is made in the image of God and called and created with the capacity to exercise dominion. This is subversive. This is radical. You see... These two things are intricately connected. You cannot extricate one from the other. If you are made in the image of God, you were created with the call and capacity to exercise dominion. Now that word dominion has been sorely misunderstood for like millennia, right? Like people, there have been people who have said, you know, dominion actually means to dominate even unto obliteration. Others have, have, meant, have said that it means, well, we are the top of the food chain. And so therefore, whatever we say goes, right? Like that's, that's how it's been translated. But I did a study of this word. There are eight different ways to say dominion in the, in the Old Testament. There are several other ways, two or three ways to say it in Genesis. This way in particular means, I can understand in some ways why they would get it confused, because it literally does mean to tread down. But the image is one of the untamed wilderness. It's, it's, that, it's the very, very beginning. 
It's the so so here. I went to Bosnia actually on the second year of the pilgrimage. We went to Croatia, Bosnia, and Serbia, and started at Dachau actually in Germany. And in our last leg of of our journey, our pilgrimage, the second year, two thousand four, was up through Bosnia. We drove up through the main you know the main highway in Bosnia, and it was only about a decade after that war had ended. And you could still see houses that were bombed out because you see the Serbian army made it their their war strategy. Their strategy was not to necessarily only to bomb military targets or state targets. You would normally expect that in a war, but no. What they did literally they had as their strategy to kill the homes of the people. So they would sit across the street, no joke, literally, with a with a bot, like um, with a cannon, and then also with machine guns, and they would shoot up the house and bomb the house, somebody's home, across the street until they had killed the home. So now we're driving up that main drag, that main street in in Bosnia, and you can see it's not a street, it's actually a highway. You can see homes along the sides of the highway that have been bombed out. You can see the bullets riddled all the way through, right? You can see. Big holes in the in the roofs, and up through the roofs are growing now trees. This is what happens when humanity is not there to maintain the boundaries. That's really what Rada dominion means: to maintain the wellness of the relationship, to maintain the boundaries of what God of what God created, the boundaries between the different pieces of what God created. The well relationship, the radically good relationship. So we grow up all over. That's for me the clearest picture of what it looks like not to exercise dominion. Earth is not cared for. It's not cultivated. And then in Genesis 2, you actually get an even clearer picture, though the word is not used. In Genesis 2, you can actually see um, that when God sets the human being in the middle of the garden and says, till and keep it. You know what those words till and keep mean? See, tilling and keeping, that's the clearest picture of dominion we get in Genesis 2. Do you know what till and keep mean? It means serve and protect. Chicago. Serve and protect. So, What it looks like to exercise God's kind of dominion is to serve, to protect, to cultivate, to steward, to exercise agency, to make choices that impact the world towards its serving, its protection, its cultivation. Does that make sense? Right. So, there are some implications here. One, very goodness is about the overflowing wellness of all relationships in creation. Two, to be made in the image of God is to be called by God and created with the capacity, all things being equal, to exercise Rada, dominion, stewardship of the world. Three, when we govern ourselves, 
our families, our communities, our churches, our cities, our states, our nation, our world, in a way that diminishes the capacity or fails to recognize the capacity of any people or people group to exercise dominion, then we are also diminishing the image of God on earth. Let me say that again. When we govern in a way that diminishes the image of God in any people or people group, fails to recognize it, diminishes their capacity to exercise dominion, then we are also diminishing the image of God on earth. We become an enemy of the image of God. And therefore, an enemy of the kingdom of God. Because where does the kingdom of God exist? Except in the ancient mind where the image of that God flourishes. Do you see? In the ancient world, one of the first things they would do when they would conquer a civilization is they would tear down the images of the king. That's why Jesus says in the temple when they say, no, Jesus, should we be paying taxes? And he says, show me a coin. And he says, whose who's icon is on this? Now, icon is the Greek word for salem, image. Whose icon is on this? And they say, oh, it's Caesar's. And he says to them, Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. It's that coin. But give to God what is God's people. So the thing is, is that when we think about this in our context today, we have to think about our American context. And how have we asked the question, how have we answered the question, rather, of how we govern ourselves? Okay? So, y'all, it's, it's often thought, we don't, we're not supposed to be talking about politics, right? Not in church. It's like, why are we talking about politics in church? Well, let me just share with you what politics really is. I'm not here to be partisan. That's not my goal. That's not my thing. I'm here, though, to share with you a very real reality about our world and about our faith as it intersects with that world. So here's the deal. Politics, in its purest form, is very simple. It is the conversation that we have together about how the polis shall live together. That's it. That's really all it is. It's the conversation that we as a society have together that determines how we shall live together. And here's the thing. On this land in the United States of America, and even before that with the British colonies, decisions were made that made race, the construct of race, constructed by the powers that be, one of the number one most fundamental, most influential things that determine the structure of how we would live together. You hear that? So when people say, we're getting too political when we talk about race, well, we kind of are. 
We're not getting too political, but we are getting political because race exists to define how we will live together. Do you hear that? Now, let's talk about the origins of race because I did some research for this book. By the way, this is a good book. Hello, somebody. Hello. So, but I did some research. In chapter 9, it's actually laid out that in, um, in 360 B.C., that was the first mention of the word race I could find in Western philosophical thought. If anybody else knows an earlier reference, please let me know. I have not been able to find one, but I'm looking for it, right? So, but in 360 B.C., you have Plato who writes The Republic. And in his pontifications on the Republic and how the Republic should work, how the polis would live together, he describes this thing called race. And what he says about race is he says, okay, so there's this thing called race. And race is whatever metal people are made of determines the race that they are. So some people are made of gold, others are made of copper, others are made of silver, others are made of iron. And whatever their metal determines how they will serve the republic. Their station in life is determined by the metal that they are made of. Right? Now we know that's not good science. <laughs> it's not really, you know, he was pontificating and it, it, it kind of worked. But it, it didn't work. But you see what I'm saying. It actually, it helped them to order the world, their world. So you flash forward, and also it's important to note that there was no hierarchy for him in terms of those metal, you know, gold. it was literally just how you served. People who were made of gold might serve in this way. People who were made of copper might serve in this way. But we begin to see that hierarchy um, a little later. The, as I trace it, one of the most significant places where you, where you begin to see a hierarchical divide is with the Pope in 1454. When the Pope begins to make the first divide between civilized and savage. The Pope in 1454 um, made this declaration we now know as Pontifex Romanus. And Pontifex Romanus was a declaration that he basically made and he signed and whatever. Because some explorer came to him and said, yo, 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 Pope, uh, I'm going to go exploring and I need a blessing. And the Pope said, yo, 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 I'll give you a blessing and I'll do you one better. He said, I'm going to give you the ability to actually claim land for the throne. Because again, there was no separation of church and state. So you go, you see that this land that you land on doesn't have stone or written language or something like that. Then that's not civilized. That's savage. You and they're not Christian. So you can then claim that land for the throne. And you can enslave those people. Because they do not bear the full image of God. It was a twisting of Genesis 126. Do you know that is how we got the United States of America? That is how we got every colonized nation in Africa. That is how we got India. That is how we got South Africa. That is how we got Australia, New Zealand, Papua New Guinea. That is how we got all of South America, North America, Central America. That is how we got the world we live in today. And then in 1746... You see Linnaeus, the botanist, come along. And he's the guy who discovered kingdom, phylum, class, genus, order, or species. I know I got that mixed up, but you know what I'm talking about, right? So he's the one who, who figured that out with botany and fauna and all. And he said, he had this brilliant idea. He said, you know, if this works with fauna, maybe it'll work with humanity, with human beings. And so he began to classify human beings. And I saw this with my own eyes. What do you think, of course, who do you think he put on top? What? White men. Actually, it wasn't even, he didn't do the, he wasn't that sophisticated. He just said, 
He, what he said was, white Europeanus. That was his scientific classification. White Europeanus. Under him, who do you think he put? Under white Europeanus, who do you think he put? Red Americanus. And then, who's under red Americanus? Yellow Asiatus. And then who's under yellow Asiatus? Black Africanus. And that's it. So now we have science further stratifying and now doing it according to color and calling it science. And it's also in this period, he's not the only one who did this, but he was the one actually that stands out. Also in this period, you have judicial rulings that are beginning to reflect this same mindset, where finally, after, after like, you know, decades of having indentured servitude that was not distinguished by color, now you have judicial rulings in the United States that are now beginning to distinguish between the indentured servitude and slavery, and slavery is then set aside for black Africanus. And then in 1787, you get it codified into law, into the original documents that established the United States, when three-fifths of a human being is the measure of humanity given to black people who were enslaved in the United States. And then three years later, you get the first census, and on that first census, there's only one race, white. On the very first census, only one. And on that same year, in 1790, you get the Immigration Act of 1790. And on that Immigration Act of 1790, you get the declaration that, it's very simple, the only people who can become naturalized citizens of the United States, only less than two decades, 14 years from the establishment of our nation, are white men. Now, why is that significant? Why is that significant? It's because in a democracy, the most fundamental way that you exercise dominion is through the vote. And you can only vote if you are a naturalized citizen. And so that right was reserved for white men. And you see, that is at the core of the struggle because you see what they, what our laws declared was a lie. Our laws declared a lie. The law is basically supposed to be like a secular Bible that declares what is true and right and just. But our fundamental founding laws declared a lie about human beings made in the image of God living within our boundaries. And it has been that lie that we have been struggling against from the very beginning. It has been that lie. That's what the Civil War was about. That's what the amendments, the 13th, 14th, 15th Amendment were struggling against. That's what Jim Crow was struggling back against. That's what the Civil Rights Movement was fighting, fighting to be fully realized as a full human being made in the image of God, called, called and created with the capacity to exercise dominion. That's what this struggle has been about. And that's what dog whistle politics has been about. 
Dog whistle politics has been about the fight to kind of try to retain that white supremacy in this United States, that, that reserved right of dominion for white people. Yes, that's what it was about. That's what mass incarceration is about. That's what police brutality is about. That's what our struggle is about. That's why the whole country erupted when Barack Obama became president. Because we finally thought, oh my God, the image of God in us has been recognized. It has been affirmed. And that's what Donald Trump's presidency is about. It is about putting us back in our place. It is about the declaration of some who feel like they got left out when others began to rise up. That, oh, no, 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 no. This land is not your land and my land. This is my land. Now, here's the thing. The repercussions of this for the church are huge. Because, you see, it is the church. It is the evangelical church. that voted against the image of God. The flourishing of the image of God for all within our borders. And I have had people say to me, but we just need to give him a chance. We just need to give him a chance. And I'm, 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 I'm speaking to you. I'm speaking to you not, not from a partisan place. I'm speaking to you as a black woman. A black woman who has found the image of God in her and want to share the beauty of the flourishing of the image of God when all of us get to flourish with the body. You see, someone wrote to me on my Facebook page, well, you can't really say that people voted for Donald Trump. You can't say you know why people voted for Donald Trump. It's true. That's true. I, I can't. Nobody can. But it is clear, it was clear from the very first speech he made all the way through at every rally to the very last speech he made to the very first appointments to his cabinet, Bannon, Sessions, Flynn, to the very first executive orders that he began to pass. What his intent was and is. And the thing is, while I don't know exactly what motivated some to vote for him. I do know this. Racism was not enough to stop them. So, you know, in the words of Beverly Tatum, who wrote, why are all the black kids sitting together in the, you know, the lunch area, the cafeteria? Um, she says, it's not enough to, like, not be racist, you have to be anti-racist. Because the thing is, we're, we live in a world where racism is actually the norm. It's, and it's not just racism, it's racial bias in the way that we structure our society. Because we have decided, we've made decisions from way back to forward about how the polis will live together, and it has been structured around race. You, this city especially, has been structured around race explicitly. And so there's no way for you to stand still. If you stand still, you will be going with the flow, which is racial bias. 
So she says, you have to be anti-racist. You have to run against the pool, against the underdough. And what I know is that those who voted for Donald Trump, even those in this room, even those across the country, I don't know who you are, I don't care. But it wasn't enough. They were not anti-racist. And the thing is, the church, the church, the church, our call from God, the reason we exist is to fan the flames of the image of God, is to worship God. How can we say we are worshiping God when we are assenting to policies that crush the image of God among us? That's all. That's all, church. And you see, back in these days, in the very first page of the Bible, we see men, priests, who had just themselves come out of 70 days of oppression and were beginning to proclaim for themselves the reality that, no, they were made in the image of God. And in the next chapter, you get these two trees where the choice is made. You can, you can exercise your dominion in a way that serves you by picking and eating of that tree, or you can exercise your dominion in a way that serves all. And they chose to serve themselves. And as a result, all of the relationships that God declared very good, just a chapter and a verse before, all fell down. The first to go is the relationship with God. The next is the relationship between men and women. I'm sorry, with self. Shame enters the world. And then men and women. And then between us and creation, we're beating the earth in order to get anything out of it. And then it's death enters the world. One of God's own creation is ripped and blood is shed for the very first time on that day. And then the next day, families break apart when Cain rises up against Abel. And then Lamech is sitting there parading with his two wives in the same chapter. And guess what those wives' names are? This is my favorite part. Adornment and shadow. Hello, somebody. It's called the NBA. Right? So, and actually not even. We have... They're everywhere. That's everywhere, right? Adornment and shadow. And then, and then just a few chapters later, you get the Tower of Babel, which is, creates the first confusion of languages, which leads to ethnic enmity. And then a few chapters after that, you get the first mention of the word war with the first mention of the word king. It took 13 chapters to go from Tov Me'od to war. But that's not the end of the story, you see, because the entire rest of the text is God's redemption story. Everything from First Kings and Second Chronicles and Job and Psalms and Song of Solomon and Isaiah and Daniel and Mark and John and Acts and Romans and First Timothy and James and Revelation, all of it is God's redemption plan, the plan to restore the very goodness of all creation, the very goodness of all relatedness within creation. And what my favorite scene, and I'll close with this, my favorite scene in scripture is that which is written at the very beginning of Luke 1. In Luke 1, we see the confrontation of kingdoms. We see in the the Luke, the, the writer of that gospel, begins his gospel by saying, in the days of King Herod, in the days of a despot, in the days of a man who would kill his own family in order to keep power, in the days of a narcissistic leader, in the days of a man who killed and 
partnered, colluded with Caesar in order to help an insurrection, actually help squash a possible insurrection. Six years before Jesus was born, six years before he was born, they say 2,000 people were crucified in one day. And Josephus says 500 people per day after that by another general. Josephus said that the soldiers got so bored with crucifixions, they began to put the bodies in different positions to amuse themselves. That's the context within which Jesus is born. That's the context. Blood ran in the streets of Galilee where he was born. In that area, the West Bank, Palestine today. This is the context that our Savior was born in. And when he was born, the writer says, in the days of King Herod. You see, the writer of Luke is setting up a confrontation of, between the kingdoms of men and the kingdom of God. And when Mary hears that she's going to have a baby... What's her response? Her response is to rejoice. To jump up and down and say, thank you, God. Her response is to say, finally, the low will be brought high and the high will be brought low. And there's going to be a reversal. And Jesus himself, when he actually shows up on the scene, says in Luke 4, in his very first sermon, he declares what his mission is. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me, referring back to Isaiah 61, quoting it directly, because he, the Lord, has anointed me to bring good news to the suburbs. I'm just testing you. I'm just testing you. No. To bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, to recover the sight of the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, which, by the way, was an economic reversal. It was a reset year, the year of Jubilee, when all the slaves literally would be set free. And the land that had been lost to debt in the last 49 years would be given back to the original deed holders when they entered the land of Israel. And then in Acts, we see that boundaries break down in Acts 2 and 4 and 6 and 10. And and then we see in Galatians 3, Paul actually begins to do some thinking of his own. And he says in Galatians 3, when he sets up the first liturgical uh, baptismal liturgy, he says, as many of you as were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ, there is no longer Jew nor Greek. There is no longer slave nor free. There is no longer male and female. For you, all of you, are one in Christ Jesus. You see, I think, and sometimes we've actually misunderstood that text. We've thought, Jesus is calling us, or Paul is calling us to be colorblind, but he's not. What Paul is calling us to do is to recognize the reality that before we go under that water, we have been trained to see power differentials in each other. We have been trained by empire to see each other in the ways and the constructs that empire created, Jew and Greek, slave and free, 
male and female, but under God, in Jesus. When you go under that water, you are washed of the lenses of empire, and you come up, and all you see is the equal call and capacity of all to exercise dominion, because all are made in the image of God. Now I have a question for you. Would my ancestors consider that good news? Amen. I want to ask you to pray with me. You see, there's, there's a way that we've all been soaking in the lenses of empire. We've been trained to see each other and our world because we've been living in this created construct of a world for 400, 500 years. To think that tomorrow we could wake up and just not see it the same is, is kind of foolish. We've got to retrain the way we see each other, the way that we see the capacity to exercise stewardship of the world, of those outside our doors, on the other side of town, on the other side of the world. So I'm going to give us an opportunity now just to, to sit and allow God to speak to you about the relationship that you need healing with. Is it the relationship between you and God? Maybe your relationship with God is actually distant itself. It is not. You could not sit here today and say, yes, my relationship with God itself, herself, himself is very good. You need God to push in and press in and get close today. And then for some others, maybe it's a relationship between men and women. The break is there for you. And you need God to do some healing. And for others, it might be within your families. And others still, it might be within your communities or between ethnic groups. Or even between nations. Let's allow God just a moment to speak to us, just to identify that space, that place where we need healing. And then I'll close us with prayer. God, we open up this time and space for you to speak. And God, I know that you don't need time. You don't need a whole lot of time to speak. You're pretty, you know what you're doing. (laughs) You know how to be heard. So God, we ask that you would speak to us. about the place where you want to come and push in and create healing in our lives. We welcome your good news. We thank you for your good news. The good news that some get to actually finally rise up and experience the image of God in themselves and others get to relax into the image of God, the reality that they are simply human, but fully human in the image of God in themselves. Speak to us, Lord. Thank you, God. We pray these things in your name and by your power. Take the seeds that were planted today, God, 
shine your light on them, water them, cultivate them, and make these seeds to grow up into a great garden that provides shade and rest and peace and safety and justice for the city of Chicago. We pray these things in your name. Amen.